me and let us pray. Father, we, we thank you for this, this Lord's Day, this time of uh, worship of you. We thank you, Father, that you have appointed a time for us to worship you on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Lord, we ask you to be with us this morning as we as we pray and as we look to you. Lord, I thank you for Christ and for his work. I thank you, Lord, for the promises that you have fulfilled through him. As you promised your servant, David. That his throne will be established forever. And Lord, throughout the time of history, you have made this promise come true. When Christ was born in the flesh, he came to fulfill the prophecy that he would sit in the seat of David. One of his royal titles is the son of David. And Lord, through that title, we see that you fulfilled your covenant promise to David as we just read. That your throne that David's throne will be established forever. And Lord Christ forever sits on the throne of David. Lord Christ forever is seated at your right hand. And this is such a, a precious and great promise for us, for believers to hold on to that God does fulfill his promises. Everything that the Lord promised will come to pass and has come to pass. So, Lord, we can approach you with confidence this morning, knowing that as we pray to you, Lord, that you will hear us. As we pray to you this morning, Lord, that you will attend to our prayers. So, Father, we thank you for being the God who listens, the, the God who hears, the God who hears his people. Lord, we're so grateful for that. The God who fulfills promises, the God who keeps his word. Lord, we thank you and we praise you this morning. Lord, we also thank you for protecting your people, for protecting us through this week, for protecting us from evil. Lord, protecting us from evil influences, protecting us from satanic attacks. Lord, we just thank you this morning for your sovereign protection. Lord, we Pray this morning for those in here who may be sick of body. Those who may have a coughing spell. Those who may have a strep uh, like our sister Melissa. She's dealing with strep this morning, Lord. She's watching us live. Pray that you be with her this morning, Lord. Heal her from this infection that she has. Anyone else in here, Lord, who may be uh, sick for different reasons. Maybe dealing with sickness, Lord, that you may visit them today. Visit them right now, Lord. The coughs that are heard, the sneezes, the aching bodies. Lord, that you may touch us this morning with your healing power. And Lord, give us the grace to be able to endure the sicknesses that we have in our bodies. Lord, we live in a fallen world. And we will have to deal with sicknesses and illnesses and disease. But Lord, you don't leave us to our own devices. 
you visit us, Lord. You minister to us by your spirit. So, Lord, I ask that you minister to those who are sick in the body this morning. Remember our parents of small children. Be with them, Lord, as they shepherd the hearts of their children. That they shepherd them in the ways of God, Lord. Our children are being uh, under attack in our schools with wicked and evil ideologies. People who are seeking to pervert our children. Lord, that you empower the parents with the wisdom to, to sniff it out, Lord, and to call it out and not be afraid to speak up against schools, against teachers that are promoting things that will pervert their children's innocent minds. And Lord, be with our parents as they continue to raise their children up under fear and admonition of the Lord. Lord, we pray for those who work in the schools, who work with children, Christians, that they may shepherd the hearts of their children well within the boundaries that they have been given. We pray for our Christian teachers who are in our public schools, Lord, that you may be with them, that you may strengthen them in the work that they do, protect them in the work that they do, that they may work with your strength, Lord. Lord, we pray also this morning for those of us in the workplace in general. Help us, Father, to work in a way that is pleasing to you. Many of us have hard jobs and hard professions and have to deal with hard people. But, Lord, you give us the grace to even deal with that. Excuse me, Lord, help us to always remember that we're working as unto you and not unto man. That we're working, Lord, to receive a reward of you from you. We're working, Lord, so that in that day when you come and judge the world and when you come to reward your saints you'll be able to say to us well done good and faithful servant help us to be good and and be faithful stewards over the jobs that you have given us to be a good Christian witness Lord to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ Lord we have to endure hardness on our jobs the hardness of the world the hardness of people who are under the influence of Satan. But Lord, help us as your word tells us, as Paul tells Timothy, to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to endure. And Lord, now we pray also for the brethren at our churches, the brethren at the churches, Lord, who are laboring in the gospel, who are laboring to preach the word, who are laboring to shepherd the flock, who are laboring in pastoral ministry through all the ups and downs. Lord, be with all of us as pastors this morning, myself here at the Living Church, and Brother Steve at Hope Presbyterian, Brother Sylvester over in Zimbabwe, and Brothers Gobbler and Josephus over in Liberia, Brother Anthony and Brother Bob, Brother Phil, Brother Josh, Brother Curly, Brother Cody, Brother Justin, my brother James. Lord, remember all these men this morning as they labor in the gospel. Be with them, Father, as they shepherd the flock of God, as they preach your word. Lord, fill us with your spirit to teach your text well. And Lord, we come now as your people gathered as one before you. With all of our weaknesses, all of our failings, and all of our needs, Lord, we know that we need you. Lord, we need the grace that has come to us through the redemption 
that is in Jesus Christ. Lord, we need to hear your gospel afresh this morning. We need the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit through your word. Lord, we need your illumination because our eyes are often dull and darkened and our hearts are often distracted by the things of this world. Lord, we don't always understand. We struggle, Lord, and so we ask now that you would teach us by your spirit through your word. We ask, Lord, that you would move us, that you would bring to light the greatness of who you are, the greatness of Christ, our neediness, and that you will stir up faith that we might look to you and to you alone. Lord, I pray that you will remove from us pride and any thought that would hinder the reception of your word, any distraction, Lord, that would keep us from hearing from you this morning, your truth as it is in the word of God. Lord, I ask that in all of us now as your people, that we will receive your word with hunger and thirst and gratefulness. Lord, feed us through your word, the bread of heaven, the word of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen and amen. Amen. Let us turn to the book of Matthew. We talked on uh, our service details and this morning as we open our worship service, as we focus on the advent of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Lord. For the next five weeks, we're focusing on the advent of Christ pointing toward his birth and we're going to look at the advent of Christ through the genealogy of Christ as it is found in Matthew's gospel one of the themes of Matthew's gospel is Jesus Christ is our king that is one of the mega themes of Matthew's gospel Christ as king Christ as ruler and so Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Christ. A genealogy is sort of like a, a family history of Christ. And so what Matthew does is establishes Christ as king, as son of David. And the Jews of his day would recognize this genealogy and they would recognize those who... Uh, came in Christ's genealogy. And Matthew's gospel is actually primarily written to the Jews. That's who his audience is. It is the Jewish people. So that is why he opened up with this genealogy because his Jewish audience will understand uh, these different characters. So what we're going to do is read the genealogy, verses 1 through 17, again, and then go back to our message. So it says here, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So why David and Abraham? David and Abraham are the two, or at this time especially, were the two most revered figures among Jewish people. David, because David was the great king. He was the greatest king that ever ruled uh, the Jewish people. He was the greatest king. And of course, Abraham was the patriarch of the Hebrew nation. It was Abraham that God called, as it is written in Genesis, the 12th chapter. God called Abram at that uh, time uh, Ur, out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram was 75 years old and God gave his covenant to Abraham. And through Abraham came the Hebrew people, the Jewish nation. 
So that is why Matthew used these two great names. Son of David is a messianic title. And son of Abraham is taking Jesus' royal lineage all the way back uh, to the Abrahamic covenant. So whose name does he begin with? Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, you know, the 12 sons of Judah. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amenadab. Amenadab begot Nashon and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. If you remember the book of Joshua, the second chapter where the spies went to spy out Jericho and it was Rahab, the prostitute, who hid them. You know, she lived in the wall and she hid them from the from the uh, army that came down to look for these spies. So that's that Rahab. Rahab begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah, uh, talking about uh, Bathsheba. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. Ahaz begot Hezekiah. So these are all great kings of Judah who were in the line of Jesus. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon. Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheetiel, Sheetiel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abweed, Abweed begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Akim, Akim begot Eluid, Eluid begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations from David until the captivity in Babylon, the 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. So you have 42 generations between Abraham, the time of Abraham, and Christ. So since the dawn of time, approximately 60 billion people have walked on planet Earth. And if you think about this, out of these 60 or so billion people, only a handful of people made a real lasting impression on humanity. Think about that. Out of the 60 billion or so people who've lived in human history, only very few made a lasting impression. But even out of those few, only one stands above all others. And that is the Lord Jesus. Only one. If you think about it, Jesus never wrote a book himself. But yet millions of books have been written about Jesus. He never painted a picture. But yet some of the world's greatest art have tried to depict how Christ looked. 
or Jesus was their source for inspiration. Jesus never raised an army. But yet millions of his followers have fought and died for him and fought and died for his name. Uh, thousands of people were martyred for his name. Martyred for the cause of Christ. Jesus never traveled far from his birthplace in his years of public ministry. But yet, the effect of his gospel message is felt all around the world. The testimony of Christ is what we preach about every time we get up and preach the gospel. Every time you open your Bible, you're reading the testimony of Christ who didn't really travel that far from home. That is the impact of one man, the God man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus had only a handful of followers. He only had 12 disciples and one of them betrayed him as we just read in Matthew uh, 26 in our, in our daily Bible reading. One of them betrayed him. He only had 12 followers. But yet, those followers, what did they do? They spread a message that would turn the world upside down. Many people try to ignore this Jesus. Many people try to reject this Christ. They say, oh, he's just a fairy tale. The Bible is just a book of fables and stories. But to reject this Jesus is fatal. It is deadly. And it can cost you an eternity. But to know Christ is the greatest thing. To know Christ is to love him. To know Christ is to trust him. To know Christ is to obey him. To trust in Christ is to be radically changed by him through salvation. To trust a man that we've never met. To trust someone whom we've never seen. To trust the man whom we only hear about and read about but Jesus is real so the most important question that we have to ask is who is Jesus and that is the question we're going to be answering the next five Sundays who is Jesus who is this Jesus that we trust who is this Jesus that we worship Every Lord's day. Who is this Jesus that we are called to obey? Who is this Jesus who calls us to repent and believe the gospel? Who is this Jesus? And the question who is Jesus is a very important question. Because all of eternity depends on it. This is the name of our sermon series for Advent and Christmas. Who is Jesus? And Matthew wants us to know. And that's what Matthew's genealogy is all about. It is answering the question. He writes so that we can know who this Jesus is. So we begin with this truth. Today, Jesus is the son of David. He begins by saying a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then we see Jesse as, uh, as the father of King David. Again, we know that there are 14 generations between Abraham and David, 
between David and the exile in 14 from the exile to Christ. Jesus is the son of David and David is a king. So that makes Jesus the king. Capital K king. That's what that makes Christ. When we confess that Jesus is king, we're not confusing him with our politicians, American politicians. While our politicians and political leaders are rulers, Jesus is not like them, and they are not like Jesus. Think about it. American politicians make big and crazy promises, don't they? And I wrote down a few. I noted a few in my, just my memory. I remember George H.W. Bush in 1988 when he was running for president. This was, he was Ronald Reagan's vice president for eight years from 1980 to 1988. And he was running for president. And he said famously at the Republican National Convention, read my lips, no new taxes. I remember him saying that. I remember watching that convention and him saying that. Read my lips, no new taxes. But guess what? There were new taxes during his presidency from 88 to 92, and that's why he was defeated by William Jefferson Clinton in 1992, or Bill Clinton as he is colloquially known. In 2012, Newt Gingrich in Congress said we will put a colony, colony on the moon by 2020. Here it is, 2023. <laughs> President Obama said in 2009, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. When he introduced his health plan in 2009, Obamacare, as they call it, guess what? That didn't happen. People were not able to keep their doctor. They were not able to keep their plan. Everybody's health insurance skyrocketed. In 2012, Congresswoman Michelle Bauckham said, I will pull American troops out of Libya and Africa, but that never happened. We still have troops over there until this day. Donald Trump promised to drain the swamp when he got into office, and that didn't happen. Politicians say anything to get be like no matter whether they have a D behind their name or an R. It does not matter. All of them are liars. They overpromise and underdeliver. But yet, and, and there's nothing wrong with voting because I vote. I'm an active voter. But when we vote, we have to understand that we cannot put our total hope and trust in politicians. Because there are very few truly honest politicians that represent us in Washington, D.C. and in Montgomery. Very few. Almost all of them are compromised. They compromise their integrity. They compromise their reputation. They compromise their Christian beliefs. So we can't trust politicians. They're not true and righteous people. In America, we're accustomed to leaders who say what the public wants them to say. 
You won't hear a politician say, we need to make slow change because that won't sell. We want leaders who promise the moon or at least a colony on the moon, but they can't deliver. But when we look at Jesus, we'll look at our three principles here this morning. When we're looking at Jesus, we see a completely different kind of leader. We see a different kind of king. I like that lion inset right there. You know, lion is the king of the jungle. You know, Jesus is what? The lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a king. He's a ruler. So when we look at Jesus first, we see that he is the promised king. Again, Matthew 1 and 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. When we hear the term Jesus Christ, <laughs> sometimes we can misunderstand it. So I want to clarify something here. Christ is not Jesus' last name. When Jesus went in for a physical, the doctor didn't say, hmm, let's see here. Last name, Christ. First name, Jesus. <laughs> no. Christ is a title. Okay? Christ is a title. Christ is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word meaning Messiah, which means anointed one. So you can say Jesus, the anointed one, or Jesus, what's the last song we sung this morning? Jesus, Messiah. He is the anointed one, the anointed one of God. And the Old Testament foretells a coming Messiah, the king who will be anointed with the Holy Spirit to accomplish God's mission. And that king, that Messiah will come through the line of David. Our call to worship scripture talked about that in the book of Jeremiah. We saw that. And also Jeremiah 33 and 17, which says this. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And who was that man that would sit on his throne? Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus was born in David's city. The city of Jerusalem is known as the city of David. And Jesus sat on David's throne. And so what Matthew does here is he, he labors to demonstrate that Jesus is the king. That he is the Christ. That he is the Messiah. That's why he said he's the son of David. Remember, the, one of the mega things of Matthew is that Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the Holy One sent of God to bring salvation. He's the king. And when Matthew wrote his gospel, Jesus did not have a legitimate king for hundreds of years. But what is Matthew declaring to these people? 
that a king has finally come to sit on David's throne and it's Jesus. And the message to us when we look at the advent, the birth of Christ, a king was born. And his name is Jesus. He came to rule and to reign. This king came to seek and to save. Christ's messianic mission was to come and declare the kingdom of God. That's why in Matthew's recording, his first public words were repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember, a kingdom has a king. A kingdom doesn't exist in and of itself. A kingdom has a king ruling over it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And who is the king of that kingdom? Jesus Christ. So he came. And Matthew is establishing his truth that this is King Jesus. And he is the one who is worthy to sit on the throne of David. So Matthew hammers this truth home. And he cited 10 specific Old Testament promises. That which was spoken might be fulfilled. So we see what was being fulfilled. That Christ the King was coming. And he was born. Matthew cites the Old Testament 10 times in his book. As you read through it, you see the Old Testament being cited over 10 times. Christ himself said, have you, have you not heard what was said of old? He was referring to the Old Testament. He was showing that all the Old Testament points to Christ, that it is not separate Jesus is the promised king, but he is also the compassionate king. Jesus didn't come to drive out Israel's enemies. That was the that was the problem. That's why that was one of the reasons why he was rejected by the Jews, because they were under Roman rule. They were under the Roman Empire. The Romans allowed the Jews to have their they allowed Israel to have their little land to do their worship and everything. But Caesar was still Lord. They had to render unto Caesar what was Caesar's and render unto God what was God's, as Jesus said. But they were under Roman oppression and they were looking for a king to come and set them free from Roman rule. That's what they were looking for. But when Jesus didn't come to do that, they were disappointed and they rejected him. But Jesus didn't come to drive out Israel's enemies. He came to bring in those who were considered outcasts. Look at his genealogy. Now in the ancient world, we have to understand genealogies were very important to ancient people. We see several genealogies, especially in the Old Testament of Israel's history. Why? Because genealogies were very important to ancient people. Knowing where they came from, tracing their ancestry through a father, a patriarch. That's why it's no surprise that Matthew's genealogy is predominantly male, but it's not exclusively male. 
Matthew mentions four women in Christ's genealogy. Look at who he mentions. Verse 3, you have Tamar. You have Rahab and Ruth in verses 5. And you have Bathsheba in verse 6. So you have those four women. So Matthew didn't highlight Jesus' connection to any of the matriarchs like Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel. You know, Rachel was the wife of uh, Jacob. And then he had uh, Sarah, who was the wife of Abraham. He didn't mention any of those. But he mentioned these other four women who were outsiders to Israel. Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab was a Canaanite. Remember, Rahab was uh, in the city of Jericho. Those were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. She was from Moab. These were all pagans. Bathsheba was a Hittite. Her husband was Uriah the Hittite. So all of these women were not Jews. They were not Hebrews. They came from pagan people. They came from pagan people groups. Each of these women were outsiders to Israel. They were not part of the covenant people. And also each one of these women had uh, what you would call a stigma attached to them. Something that would make them uh, unfavorable if you look at in the, in the book of Genesis uh, we see that Tamar was dishonored by her brother-in-law in Genesis 38 and I won't say how she was dishonored but she was dishonored you have to read it for uh, yourself but she was dishonored by her brother-in-law and then later she deceived her father-in-law into sleeping with her so, so that she could conceive children but yet she was included in Christ's genealogy. Think about that. She was violated by her brother-in-law and she deceived her father-in-law into uh, having children with him. Rahab, of course, as I mentioned, she was a prostitute. Joshua, the second chapter, that's where you see her story and her family was saved when Israel came in and and, uh, you know, the walls of Jericho fell down. Rahab and all of her family were saved because she hid the spies when they came over. But she was a what? Prostitute. A harlot. But she is included in the genealogy of Christ. Bathsheba, of course, committed adultery with King David. That's found in 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter. And Ruth, in the book of Ruth, fourth chapter, she once worshipped Kamash, who was the god of the Moabites. But she came to believe in the god of the Hebrews. So you have these four women in the genealogy of Christ. So you think about this. Jesus came to bring outcasts home to God. To remove the shame of sinners like Tamar, like Rahab, like Ruth, like Bathsheba. Because the Jews expected again a Messiah who will come and drive out the Roman oppressors and crush these nations to establish God's rule. 
But Jesus didn't come to judge the nations at first. He came to save the nations. Matthew 1 and 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He didn't come to rule and to conquer. He came to what? He came to seek and save those who were lost. That's what Jesus came to do. Those who were outcasts, he came to bring them home to God. And this is a preview of the rest of Luke's gospel. I mean, Matthew's gospel. If, 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 if you read it, you will see, especially in the earlier chapters, how, how Jesus healed the sick. He fed the 5,000 and then he fed the 4,000. He came to heal. He came to deliver those who were sick and those who were distressed. He got close enough to the disease. The people who were quarantined from society. He touched them. He welcomed them. Those who dealt with the effects of sin. That's what Jesus came to do. And that includes all of us. Jesus came to save those who are sin sick. Those who are lost. Those who are in misery because of their sins. Jesus came to save them as the compassionate king. Jesus came to take away the ugly shame of sin. He didn't only take away our guilt and our shame. A person doesn't have to drink their guilt and shame away. They don't have to smoke their guilt or shame away. They don't have to despair their shame and guilt away. They don't have to work their shame and guilt away. Many people and I was thinking about this this morning. Many people put all of their heart into work so that they can get their mind off of things. The guilt that they feel. The shame that they feel. They put themselves into work. They put themselves in some type of hobby or, or some type of other activity. You know, some people, they have to stay busy so they won't be thinking about things. But you still can't escape it. They stay on their phones and, and scroll needlessly. So that they can get their minds off of things, off of the things that they're dealing with, off of their guilty conscience. Because they're living in rebellion against God, they have to constantly distract themselves. And then when they go to bed, they can't sleep at night because their guilt of sin is, 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 is wreaking havoc on them. Jesus came to save those people. Just as he did in Matthew's gospel. People who are sin sick. You can be sick with sin and don't make no mistake about it. Sin can make you sick. Evil in your hearts can make you sick. Make you mean. Make you nasty. Make you unpleasant to be around. People don't want to talk to you. People don't want to deal with you because they don't know how you're going to come off. Why? Because you're so miserable because of sin, because you are living in sinful rebellion against God. But good news, the compassionate king came to save you. 
That's what he came to do. Jesus isn't a king who sits on his throne and says, try harder, do better next time. No, he is not that kind of king. He's a king who descends from his throne. Filled with compassion, coming to save us, coming to redeem us, coming to reconcile us to God. He's not there telling us to just try harder and just do better. No, Christ came down as the God man to reconcile us to God, to redeem us from sin, to save us from the misery of sin. He came to put us in the right relationship with the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus identifies with us in the pit of shame. Think about this, people. At our darkest point, when we feel the ugliest, when we feel the most in despair, Jesus says, I came to save you. That's what he's saying. He's saying, come to me, Matthew 11, all you who labor and who are burdened, and I will give you rest. Luke 19 and 10 says, for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. I think about the story of Zacchaeus in, 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 in Luke 19. Verse 8, Luke 19, then Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I gave half of my goods to the poor and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. This was about uh, Zacchaeus who went up. He was a chief tax collector and uh, he was very rich. He was trying to find who Jesus was. And, you know, uh, because of the crowd, he had to go up into the tree. Into the sycamore tree. He looked up and saw Zacchaeus, told him to come down. He said, for today, I must stay at your house. And Zacchaeus made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Because remember, tax collectors were looked down upon. Then that's when I read, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I give half my goods to the poor, and I have, and if I have taken anything from anyone uh, by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. This was the house of a sinner, the house of someone who was looked down upon in Jewish society because tax collectors worked for the Roman government. That's why they were looked down upon. Matthew himself was a tax collector. So he knew how it felt to be Zacchaeus. But what did Jesus say to Zacchaeus? Today, salvation has come to your house. He says, because he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That is the compassion of Jesus. Bringing salvation to a despised tax collector. No matter a person's past. No matter what a person has done in their life, we, we should never look at anyone and say they're not worthy of being saved. We can do that sometimes. I can be guilty of it. 
someone who's raped a child. Yes, they should be put to death, I believe. That's capital punishment. But while they're in jail awaiting their sentence, Lord, save them. The person who's on death row, the person who's life without parole, they're still worthy to pray for. Lord, save them. Bring salvation to them. Why do you think they have jail ministries? Why do you think people go into the jails and do ministry in jails? Why? Because they believe that even just because just, just a person is in jail, that they can still be saved. So, a tax collector, a prostitute. Yes, we don't like their lifestyle. We don't agree with their lifestyle, but that does not mean that they are not ones that can be called to be saved. This tax collector, this shows the compassion of Christ. What other people said and thought and did to us doesn't define us. Our diagnosis doesn't define us. We don't have to live in shame. We're unworthless because we're image bearers of God. That's what we must always remember. None of us are damaged goods. We're clean through Christ. We're whole through Christ. We are his by regeneration. There is help outside of us. Help never comes from within us. Help comes from outside of us. And it comes through the compassionate king that we are reading about this morning. It does not come through us. It does not come by us. This is not no... It's not no self-help thing. It's not about no love yourself type nonsense. No, it comes through another. And that is Jesus Christ, the compassionate king. Lastly, Jesus is also the rejected king. He's the rejected king. We see this throughout the book of Matthew. To the Jews of his day, Jesus was the wrong kind of king. Again, he lived in the wrong place. He associated with the wrong people. He preached the wrong message. His message was one of repentance. He appointed the wrong leaders. He carried out the wrong mission. He offered the wrong redemption in their eyes, in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. They wanted to be redeemed from Rome, from Roman rule. Jesus wants to redeem them from their sins. You know what? That's a good illustration of our culture. Many people find or think that they can find salvation in the things of this world. They think they can find salvation through uh, a good marriage, a nice house in a nice neighborhood, a nice Vehicle that everybody can look and say, man, that's a nice car. How much you paying for that a month? You know. Through the drip, as the young people say. Many people look for salvation in material things. So they don't want to hear the message of Jesus. They don't want to hear that they need their sins forgiven. They don't want to hear that they need their soul saved. They just want 
the material. This is not a knock on ministries that help the poor because we do it in the sense of ourselves with the nursing home. Many acts of kindness that ministries do for people are good. We are called to do that as believers. The problem comes when helping hurts because you know we had this in our early experience as a church and I still see it until this day we know we used to do the, the Thanksgiving uh, we used to partner with other churches at the city meeting center our first three four years as a church uh, feeding people for Thanksgiving giving them no we actually gave them turkeys like whole turkeys and you know green beans all the fixings and stuff like that for them to go and you know they were picked through the community service organization like community enabler and whatnot and you know we would have a you know everything at the city meeting center laid out on the tables and all that and we had the chairs up front and we would have a worship service first before giving out the food and what we found out most of those people that were there were there just for what? The food. We had some people actually asking, how long y'all going to be? No, seriously. They were not concerned about the gospel message that we were trying to preach to them. They were more concerned about getting the food. And so, like I said, I'm not saying all that is wrong, but my, the, the point I'm making is the greatest need that a person has is not their next meal but what their next destiny is going to be after they die and we found out that some people were taking those turkeys that we all raise money to give them you know turkeys are not cheap they were taking them selling them they were taking them selling them some of them were, were, were exchanging them for drugs and just taking them back and selling them and we found out that someone doing that, uh, they were calling people and saying, hey, they'll be giving out free free food, whoever they were, you know. And you, you saw, where, where are these people coming from? You know, you saw people coming up from across the street, like in the, in the parking lot, like, where are these people coming from? Because their names were not on the, the list to get all this stuff. I mean, we didn't give it to them unless we had something left over. But the point is, they just wanted the food. They didn't want to hear about Christ. And it happens a lot. So we decided to do as churches to stop doing that. You know, other ministries still do it, and that's fine. There's nothing, there's nothing sinful or wrong about it. But we decided to pull out of it because we saw the underside of it that was not good. But what, what am I saying all that to say? Many people want the benefits of Christ, but they don't want Christ himself. Many people want the benefits of Christianity. They want to benefit from what Christians do. They want to benefit from Christian work and Christian charity, but they don't want Christ himself. The most important need that they have is to have Christ. Jesus wasn't a social justice warrior. Among these Jews, he preached the wrong message. He preached the message of repentance. 
His very first words in Matthew's gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the gospel of Mark, repent and believe the gospel. His message was a message of repenting, turning from your sins and turning to him and be saved. He did feed the 5,000, but he also ministered the gospel to those same 5,000. He did have compassion on the poor. He did heal the sick, but he also called them to repent because you can still be sick and get well and still go to hell. You can go to hell well. But Jesus was rejected because he didn't preach the right message. And that's why people reject Jesus now, because they don't want to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. They want to worship themselves. They want to love themselves. And they want everyone else to worship them. Jesus was rejected by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the religious leaders of his day. They plotted to kill him, as we read in Matthew 26. And the whole thing came to a head on Good Friday. Excuse me, Matthew wrote about it. You'll see that when you read chapter 27. They wrote a charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That was his charge. That's Matthew 27 and 37. But that wasn't it. He rose on the third day. Matthew 28 and 18 says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this is what we expect of a king to have all authority. When Jesus said all authority in heaven and earth, he was saying, I am king. A king has all authority, all rule. And Christ, because he's king, the rejected king, the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone, as, 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 as the scripture says. He was the stone that the builders rejected, but yet he became the chief cornerstone. He became the one on whom our salvation is built, on whom the church is built, on whom our eternity is built. Christ is that cornerstone. The rejected king became the foundation for our salvation and for our eternity. And as our king, Jesus makes demands of us. He has all authority in heaven and earth. But before he makes demands of us, he comes for us. He lives for us. He dies for us. He raises from the dead or God rose him from the dead for us. Christ gave all for us. He said no one takes his life. He gave his life. That's a king worth following. None of these political leaders will give their life for us. They won't. I don't care who they are. None of them are worth dying for. None of them can raise themselves from the dead. Only our king can. Jesus calls us to follow him. He's our king. And he calls us to follow him all the days of our life. Now, I end by saying this. How do we follow this king? 
How can we be ruled by this promised, compassionate, and rejected king? How do we get to know Jesus, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Only through repentance. Remember, Jesus' message from the beginning of his public ministry, as recorded in scripture, is repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Matthew 4 and 19. And Mark 1 and 15 says something similar. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's how you can get to know this king. To repent means to turn from your sins, to turn from your way of living, to turn from your selfish ways and turn to Christ and plead his mercy. Plead for his grace and he will save you. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this great king, Jesus. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. He came to save to seek and save those who are lost. Father, I pray this morning that as we close on this Christmas season, that we don't see Jesus as just a little baby in a manger, but we see him as the king, as the God king, as the God man, Jesus Christ, who came to preach the right message of repentance, who came to save sinners from the shame and guilt of their sins who came from a lineage, a genealogy of imperfect people, but he presents, he is presented to us as the perfect king who sits on the throne of David. He is the son of David, Lord. And we thank you for Christ. We thank you for him being the fulfillment of scripture, the fulfillment of prophecy. And Lord, my prayer this morning is that people who hear this, who don't know Jesus is king, that they come to know him as king, that they repent, Lord, that you work in their hearts saving faith and that they may repent that they may turn from their sins turn from the misery of sin and follow Jesus and be saved and have that eternal life Lord thank you for your wonderful work this morning may it bless the saints and may it convict sinners in Christ's name I pray Amen